Chapter 33 Gloria was still fuming when she arrived home. So Henry had just left, had he? Without any warning? Well, she'd left him first, goddammit. She slammed the front door, marching through the living room to toss the files she'd pulled from under her passenger seat across the oak surface of the kitchen table with a gratifying splat. The five manila folders slid out like a fan. She swung her purse into one of the kitchen chairs, yanking the Polaroid of Claudia Hastings from the outer pocket, slapping it atop the pile. Why hadn't she done herself a favor and looked through these the day she'd picked them up? Her plan now was to turn these over to Casey Cash, though she couldn't do that in good conscience if she didn't know what she was passing along. It could all be some type of malicious hooey, she rationalized. Who hired private eyes anyway? Wasn't there some type of law that prevented stolen information like this from being used in court? And how in the hell had Ted Carroll gotten his hands on these? And why did he want her to see them so badly? She poured a large juice glass of boxed wine. Her shaking hands hovered over the files for a moment before she pulled the first file, the file labeled Schaefer, Lisa, in red. There were several post-it notes affixed to various pages and receipts. These seemed to be in a different print. Ted's editions, perhaps? It was a fairly easy chain of events to follow with the included paper trail. The first note in the file was a handwritten half-sheet of paper that read, Lisa Shaver, 898-555-5555, inside of a coffee ring. There was another full sheet of paper with the following notes, handwritten in the same tiny half-cursive script as the phone number. The top of the paper stripped from a spiral notebook, still sporting the shredded ruin of its liberation. The first line spelled out, Saint, comma, Hanover, with a description, which had been redacted with a black marker. Ah, she realized, sliding the fourth file from under the top two. Hanover Saint was a person. That made more sense. She'd thought it an odd name for a saint. Folded at the bottom, a copy of three old-fashioned traveler's checks for $250 each, simply for services rendered on May 26th of the previous year. Moving to the next file, St. Hanover in green. She deduced that, for whatever reason, as Rusty Fry certainly hadn't notated it in his spiral-bound notes, he continued watching Hanover at no charge once his job for this Lisa Shaver was complete. There were no notes, but there was a small, neat stack of copied documents and several photos. According to the change of address postal request, Hanover St. arrived in the area from Boston over a year ago, first to Tyler then made his way to White House, where he leased an apartment, as shown via a copy of his rental agreement with Great Oak Leasing Consolidated. Paperclip to the inside of the manila envelope was a crude surveillance log, but no notes, as, again, Rusty Fry seemed to do his best work with the camera. There was a series of rather prettily composed black-and-white glossy 8 by 10s presumably of the hulking outline of this Hanover fellow, going about his life. In the last few photos, this same man was now armed with a long-lensed camera. A camera trained on yet another, smaller, more indistinct figure in the distance. This led to an absurd, candid photo collection of one person surveilling another who didn't know they themselves were being surveilled. One of these was a blurry color photo of the shadow of Hanover Saint, taking a photo of a man with Henry's coloring and build entering Westbridge, 
her mother's retirement facility, at dusk. According to the date on the post-it, with a big red question mark beneath, almost a year ago. Before Henry met Terry. Right after her mom moved in. Her stomach fell. Before she knew Henry even existed. Gloria took a healthy swig of wine, shaking her head cynically. Rusty Fry had, at this point, lost interest in Hanover Saint, yet, as recorded on the surveillance log paper-clipped into his file, continued following Henry for the better part of three months. The time covered by the two files labeled Winter Henry I and Winter Henry II in blue blocky letters. In those folders, pictures of him, Henry, in Longview sitting at a small diner. Across from him, Claudia Hastings, smiling like a doting grandmother. A receipt of cash paid to Henry for an antique pocket watch at a collector's pawn shop in Dallas last July. A picture of Henry walking the dead neighbor's now missing dog. Her heart dropped a beat lower with every piece of damning information. The last entry on Rusty Fry's exhaustive surveillance logs was on August 19th, two days before his gruesome murder. It read, S-U-N, comma, Don, question mark, meet with H. Three days before that, another log entry that simply said, there, T-H-E-I-R, watching. Both of those entries were highlighted. The color drained from Gloria's face. The information contained in the bottom file labeled miscellaneous, abbreviated likely through want of correct spelling, with yellow block letters, was sparse. A small cutout of a local story involving an unnamed victim found by the train tracks on the outskirts of town. An accident or suicide of an unknown male, Caucasian, approximate age 20 to 25. Gloria recognized the story from the Gazette. The supposed train accident was likely the Lakeside Slayer's first victim. But who was he? A copy of an autopsy report for John Doe was folded, stuck to the back of the news clipping. Gloria wasn't much of a doctor, but she could read a diagram well enough to see that the victim had been missing his head. Though that little nugget had been left out of Ted's story. She made a mental note to get by the Gazette as soon as she could. She and Ted needed to talk before she turned these files over to the police. This was all the proof they'd need to see that Rusty Fry was meeting Henry the day he was killed. She didn't know what to think. She convinced herself that what she'd seen that day with Henry had been a farce, a parlor trick, an illusion. But now she had to face facts. She didn't know Henry at all, and he was likely far more dangerous than she'd ever imagined. She laid her head on the table, exhausted, her thoughts swirling. She felt warm. Was she running a fever? She had just closed her eyes when the phone pinged. She stretched and rubbed her neck. Good grief, it was almost two in the morning. Usually it was Gloria who sent the text. For the first time, it was she who received the agreed-upon call to action emergency from D. As they had established nearly two years ago, the recipient, in this case Gloria, no questions asked, texted okay to acknowledge and immediately got into her car and drove to D's, her heart pounding out of her chest in fear.